The opinions expressed during this program are solely the opinions of the host, guests, and callers. They do not necessarily represent the views of the advertisers, management, staff, or ownership of WCTC. You're listening to Wake Up Call. I'm your host, Christina Previtt. If we haven't met before, I was a divorce lawyer in New Jersey for 15 years. I'm currently the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a divorce law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. Joining me today is Amy Impelizari, reformed corporate lawyer, award-winning author. She's the author of Lawyer Interrupted, Lemongrass Hope, The Secrets of Worry Dolls, The Truth About Thea, Why We Lie, and Due Out in March of 2020. I know how this ends. She's had numerous essays and articles that have appeared in online and print journals, including Writer's Digest, The Huffington Post, TheAtlantic.com, ABA Law Practice Today, Grown and Flown, and more. She is a member of the Tall Poppy Writers, a past president of the Women's Fiction Writers Association, and a frequently invited speaker at legal conferences and writing workshops across the country. Thank you for joining me, Amy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Very excited to have you here. You have quite an impressive resume. Well, thank you. (laughs) So we have a lot to talk about. Yeah. And um, I want to start with your experience as a corporate lawyer. We refer to you as, well, you refer to yourself as reformed corporate (laughs) lawyer. So can you just take me back to that time when you were corporate lawyer and I think anybody looking on the outside at the time would be like, wow, this woman has it all. She's in big law. She's successful. She's in New York City. Yeah. She's at Skadden, you know, like, yeah, big deal. Yeah. But on I guess, paper, it yeah. looks like everything I was, you know, I had worked for and everything that I thought I wanted. Um, I I didn't uh, I didn't do a summer associate at a big law firm. I actually worked. I went to law school in D.C. and I worked at the American Petroleum Institute. And I, I, I always say like D.C. is a place where you can do jobs that don't exist anywhere else. So I really soaked in the whole D.C. experience, and I clerked there. I clerked for a federal court, but then I did get. I got my first job after my clerkship, working for a small kind of boutique firm um, that was based in New York. And then I um, got a job offer from Scadden, and so I jumped ship and. And and yeah, and I thought, okay, this is this is everything I worked for. This is going to be this is it. I have arrived, <laughs> but uh, it didn't it wasn't exactly like that. Even though I think when I first started there, I thought, well, I'll work a couple of years and I'll sort of see what doors this opens up. And then a decade later, when I was still there, it was time to really kind of like reevaluate what I was doing. So you didn't anticipate being there for a decade? I did not. No, okay. I did not. I think a lot of people have that experience, so no matter what you do, where you, you thought you had all these other goals, and then you wake up one day and you're like, how am I still doing the same thing that I've been doing for so long? Yeah. How would you? How long would you say you, when did you, did you just start to become unhappy practicing law in general? Um, I didn't know. I was feeling a, a discomfort that I really couldn't name. And then um, I and I don't know. I don't know if I and I did sort of modify my schedule. So I was working um, part time, but part time at Scadden was basically, you know, six, days, hours six a day. days a week instead of seven, basically. Um, so I tried that and and I thought maybe I was just burning out. And and then honestly, I took I had this opportunity to take a one-year sabbatical, and I don't I don't know where I would be without that sabbatical because that was really it was very the timing of it was really great, 
And uh, so it happened in 2009, and I didn't leave to write. I didn't leave for any specific purpose, but I really did leave to kind of figure out, catch my breath, and figure out, okay, what's going to be next? Am I going to... Am I going to stay in the practice of law? Am I going to? I'm going to articulate sort of what is uncomfortable for me. And so I made this. I made it like a year that I was going to just do only things that interested me. And I was very deliberate about the year. And then um, at the end of the year, I knew I was going to make a decision one way or the other. And you've shared this before, but were they still paying you? Yeah. So it was a subsidized sabbatical. So I was still. Um, so it was. It was. It was not uh, – I had a little bit of a safety net, right? Yeah. So it was um, one-third of my salary. I was subsidized. And then I did line up some freelance work. But I was also able to do some pro bono work. So I had the luxury of sort of, you know, experimenting with a few different things. I was writing, but not fiction writing. I was doing, like, legal writing and business journal writing. Um, and I was doing advisory work for a nonprofit group and really kind of getting into that, into the, the – the sort of management of the nonprofit and learning about that and and doing some other work. And then I did, I found this company that was actually a, a for-profit company. It was a venture capital-backed company, a startup company. And I started doing some writing work for them. And that's ultimately the place, it was called Hybrid Her. And they were basically providing uh, an on. they were building an online platform for women entrepreneurs to market themselves. And I did not come on as a lawyer. They had their own lawyers, but I came on uh, as a writer. And also I was sort of like, a translator between the creative team and the legal team because I could talk lawyer. And it was the first time I realized that my law career and my law degree had actually prepared me for something other than practicing law, which I never would have discovered had I not left the law. But that was when I figured that out. I think that's a struggle that a lot of people have that want to leave law is they think, well, what else am I going to do? Right. What else can I do? And I also think it's hard for people sometimes because they identify. Part of their identity is so tied to being a lawyer. Yeah, 100%. That it's hard for them to break away from that. But it doesn't sound like you had that problem. Well, I worked through it. It's not that I didn't have it at all, but I recognized it right away. I recognized that that was going to be an issue for me. Um, I you know, I definitely was met with a lot of, you know, are, are you are you sure about giving it all up? And I just I figured out very quickly that the narrative was that I wasn't giving anything up, that I was still a lawyer, that I was just using my legal training in other ways. And I was lucky because I did, um, like I said, I did. I was deliberate about the opportunities I sought out, but I did have some opportunities that really did let me understand that my legal training was valuable. And so I I grasped onto that pretty quickly, and I I thought, you know, I'm not going to disavow my background. I'm not going to say – I'm not going to – pretend I'm not a lawyer. I'm not going to say, oh, I'm not a lawyer anymore. I just really embrace that. And I tell transitioning lawyers that a lot, that that's, I mean, I think the two biggest hurdles are identity and financial, and they're both very real. Yeah, because you get accustomed to yeah. a certain lifestyle, certain income. And, Absolutely. And yeah, it's hard to break away from that. So I'll just be very frank. Did you have to take a big pay cut to leave law? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I always say I've been away from the law for 10 years now. This is my 10th year. And I've never replicated my salary. But it has never been a hardship because um, there were so many expenses I was incurring at the time of practicing law. Like I call, there's a whole category of expenses that fall away when you leave the law called self, that I call self-soothing expenses that were just, that were literally just me like spending a lot of money on, you know, restaurants and trips and things to, to basically like cheer myself up. Yeah. No, I think I've been guilty of it. And I have to say, I became acquainted with you several years ago because you spoke about this very thing at a bar function. Mm -hmm. 
And as soon as you said that, yeah. I thought, oh, my God, I've yeah. been doing that. Yeah. It just never occurred to me before. Yeah. Was that something you kind of realized later yourself? It was something I was realizing by the by the end of when when I was at still at SCAD and I was realizing I was sort because of, I was sort of taking stock. Okay, if I'm going to leave and my salary's going to be cut for a, you know in a third for a year, um, what what can I? And when I looked at what I could cut back on, I was like, I can't believe the money I'm spending just to sort of pamper myself because I'm so unhappy. And that was yeah. a big that was like a big wake up call for me. Um, and we did move. I did move out of New York and uh, to Pennsylvania for you know a a lower basically cost of living um and that has been that has been really good that has been a really good decision it's not a decision i recommend to everyone but i do tell people and not just transitioning from the law but any professional transition is like the worst time to leave is when you've bottomed out you know the worst time to leave is when you're completely burnt out and you just run out the door like a you're plan desperate. is important yeah. yeah so i did come up with a plan and my year sabbatical was my plan to sort of put things in place yeah well they say the universe gives you what you yeah. need when you need it but yeah. you do have to recognize the opportunities absolutely. and you did yeah you recognize the opportunity at that point because you could have said no to the sabbatical yeah and yeah who knows what you'd be doing yeah. now and and i you know i really had to fight for it because we were really busy it was it was a very interesting time in the law it was 2009 uh, lehman brothers had collapsed and uh, you know, the New York law scene was very bizarre. The, you know, mergers and acquisitions department were completely quiet and they were all fearing for their jobs. But I was a litigator, right? Litigators are litigations impervious to economic decline. So I was really busy. And so the um, Scadden's answer to basically the economic situation at the time was to offer lawyers to apply for this sabbatical and they thought that basically the M&A lawyers would apply for it and it would sort of like you know balance out the slow season but of course what happened was the M&A lawyers all were like well we'll stay for full salary and do nothing and all the litigants were applying for the sabbatical so my you know the head of my department really you know was not going to grant me the sabbatical at first so she's too busy and I really fought for it and I said it's just a year just let me take one year um, and so that ended up being a really great, it ended up being a really great thing for me, but. And then was there a time you extended it? Yeah. So at the end of the year, by the end of the year, I was working, um, full time for this company, Hybrid Her. And like I said, it was a startup company and I wasn't really sure what it was going to lead to. And I did by that point have this idea for a novel, which was seemed, I didn't know what I was going to do with that. Right. So I'd started a novel. I was working for Hybrid Her. I eventually uh, got a position on the executive team and I was vice president of their community and content department and I thought well maybe I could maybe I can turn this into something else and so I asked to extend my year sabbatical into a three-year unpaid leave and by that point I had moved to Pennsylvania but I was in talks with them about maybe working out of the Delaware office um, and so the, so it was like baby steps so first it was a year sabbatical subsidized then it was three-year unpaid leave of absence and then at the end of the three years by that point I had that's plenty of time. Yeah. So, yeah. Did you already know in the back of your head that I'm probably not going back after the three years? I do remember walking out, like, a very deliberate, like, sort of scanning the room. Like, I probably should take one last look at all this in case I don't come back. It was very helpful to have the safety net of knowing I could come back. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I don't discount that. But th- I, I very much remember just sort of standing there, looking around and thinking, this this might be it. I should take one one good last look at all this. And that was And it. you really didn't look back. I really didn't. I really didn't. I, I really... 
as the year went on, you know, the sabbatical, and as I really did start to spread my wings and understand that I could do something else with my law degree. And I had practiced law by that point. I had been practicing for 13 years. So I also learned very quickly to, to sort of respond to people who were saying, you know, I can't believe you're wasting, aren't you wasting your law degree? Yeah, aren't you wasting that. your time? And I, you know, I really believed, I was really, I meant it when I said it wasn't a waste. You know, I don't regret any of the time I spent practicing law, but I certainly don't regret the time I've spent away either. And it was, you know, I did it. It was, I practiced law for 13 years. That was a long time. And then it was time for me to do something else with my law degree and with my legal training. So it hasn't felt like a waste at all. And as I have met and interviewed and worked with other transitioning lawyers, who have worked, you know, who have gone on to work in other fields, they all say without exception that their law degree is the differentiator that helps them in the next field or in the next leg because there's just a lot, there are a lot of negotiating and writing and mediating strategies that you've learned and that you've cultivated and honed that help you later on. So it's not a waste. Definitely. Yeah. And your analytical skills. Yeah, for sure. Do you ever miss at all, even for a second, you know, the excitement of being in court, (laughs) you know, pleading your case, making your legal arguments? I think that probably was something I missed a little bit in the in the early years. Um, And then afterwards, I sort of made my own excitement, you know, the, the publishing um, industry has is very very different from the law, but there have been a lot of really fabulous moments to that. So I feel like I've I, I've learned very quickly to embrace every little success. You know, so one of my books was picked by Francis Ford Coppola for the this Books and Bottles project, mm-hmm. and I went to Sonoma, and there was a big launch at the winery, and I really like I grasped I thought you know this that was really fun, and that was something that really replaced those sort of moments that I that I would have thought early on that I would have missed in litigation because I did always want to be a litigator because I did love the adrenaline of that. Yeah. Um, but I've replaced it in other ways and I feel good about that. Yeah. yeah. So when you started writing, what was that like? Did you just sit down one day and like, where did this come from and just start writing? Or had you been thinking about it for a long time? Yeah. I mean, probably not surprisingly, the first novel, the first idea that came to me was because I was... I was always going to be a lawyer, right? There was never any there was never any backup plan. I was going to be a lawyer from the time I started college. And so now here I was leaving the law, leaving what I thought I had worked for all that time. And so the first idea I got for a novel was about a woman at a crossroads in her life rethinking every decision she had made. And it was I told it in a I had this idea to tell it in a different way as sort of this this love story. But um I did. I just started taking pen to paper, but I but I worked on it for years. I had no idea how to write a novel. And I thought, well, I'm a lawyer and I've been a professional writer for all of these years. I can figure this out. And so I would I would write, you know, in fits and starts basically. I would write and I at the time I had young kids, so I I wrote that first novel pretty much exclusively like between 9 p.m. and midnight every night for for years. And then I would put it away and I would think this is ridiculous. And this is thinking? Lemongrass Hope that we're was talking Lemongrass about. Hope, yeah. Did you write Lawyer Interrupted first? So, no. Interestingly, I got the book contract for Lawyer Interrupted before I got the book contract for Lemongrass Hope, but Lemongrass Hope was written. So I was writing that all along and and still writing in uh, you know, business articles and law, legal journal articles. And um, and so actually what happened was I, I'm working on this book that eventually well, – I was calling it Lemongrass Hope even then. And I would put it away for a while and pick it back up and i think, is there something here? And then I started to get 
more serious about the craft of it, I started to think, you know, if I'm really going to turn the, what am I going to do with this at the end? Am I going to like give this out as Christmas presents? Am I going to try to pursue publication? So once I started to to, to think that I was going to pursue publication, I started going to writing seminars and writing conferences and networking with other writers and really kind of working on that path. But I got a call. I was working. I was in a coffee shop one day working on that book, and I got a call from an agent who was working with the American Bar Association. And they, she had read other things I had written about my transition, and she said, "I really want to pitch this book to the Bar Association called Lawyer Interrupted, and I want you to help me with this pitch. I feel like this would be the perfect storm of opportunity." And here I am. I'm sitting there with basically a finished manuscript, and she's asking me to write a totally different book. And I was like, yes, that is a great idea. I don't, still don't really know what made me say that, just an instinct. I was like, yeah, that's a book I want to write. So I actually signed that contract first, and it helped me. Having, having that contract and then a year to write it helped me get the contract for Lemongrass Hope because another publisher had – a big publisher had had some faith. That, is she – she, I'm assuming it was she – is she your agent now? No. She was just my agent for that one book, just for okay. Lawyer Interrupted. She was um, – ha- I've had a separate agent for my fiction writing. I, so I know a lot of people – I've been – I've at times been an aspiring writer. We've talked about yeah. that. But I think um, – I think the radio gig is working for me. Yeah, but definitely. I, I know a lot of people that um, lawyers, and not just lawyers, but a lot of lawyers that want to write a book. They either want to write a memoir or yeah. nonfiction or fiction. Yeah. They really want to get into that. But a lot of people get a little paralyzed yeah. with, well, what do I do? And I don't even know how to start. Do I write the book first? Do I and then try to pitch it to somebody? Do I just do an, a proposal and then pitch that and then write the book? So, what would you recommend for people like that? Yeah, it's hard. I always, you know, for a long time, I used to say I had a very kind of unorthodox path to publishing, but I've since learned that there really is no like orthodox path path to publishing, right? So everybody does their own thing. I think for a new author. Uh, it is hard to pitch just a proposal. I mean, usually you do have to have a manuscript, but but that's not to say that could never happen. And certainly for nonfiction, in the nonfiction world, proposals are m- much more common. Um, I do think that it's important to 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 not rely on the you know the idea that I had when I was starting out that I'm a lawyer, I'm a f- professional writer. This can translate over to fiction. Fiction writing yeah. is very different. The craft of of storytelling is very different. Even though we are storytellers at heart, so it does it can translate. It just you need some you need some honing. And so um, I definitely recommend to any aspiring writer, but especially lawyer lawyer writers. And there are a lot of us to to study the craft, to study the craft of writing first, and then you know to sort of put the manuscript together, but there's, you know, there'll be a million drafts before before the end. I mean, lawyers are good at that. So, well, I, had, I did take a couple of memoir writing courses yeah. just to you know, get started, yeah. just to get something to make me get started. And the instructor had said, "Write the first draft for yourself. Yeah, just do it like no one's going to read it. And if you need to go chronologically, then." then do that. Just yeah. get something on paper. Yes. And then, you know, you'll edit things after that. Yeah. That's where the magic happens, the editing. Yeah. The, the, I try not to edit too much while I'm writing. Um, I mean, I've got my, my process is 
I was going to say gotten refined a little bit, but that's not exactly true because each book is different. Um, but I think probably it's refined a little bit more than I've never, it's never, I've never had the luxury of taking four years to write a book again the way I did Lemongrass Hope. So I've had to refine the process somewhat. But I do try not to edit too much in the first draft because so much happens. And I would often go back and look, especially Lemongrass Hope, which took years. I'd go back and look at things I'd written years earlier and I'd think, I have no, me- you could have told me you wrote it. I have no memory of writing whole sections of the book that re- that stayed, you know, that I kept, that I thought, oh my gosh, if I had if I hadn't read that, if I hadn't captured that right then, it would have been gone because I, I really didn't even remember writing it. And that still happens, that there's huge passages of books that you'll go back and go, I don't remember writing that. I'm glad I captured that when I did. Then there's huge passages that you cut <laughs> that you never want to see again. But yeah. but that that's part of the process. I mean, you have to write a lot of words before you can have enough words to keep. So Well, if you – so do you start out with just kind of generally having – you know, a piece of the story and then you build around that? Do you just sit down and start typing and it just flows out of you? I mean, how far ahead, and maybe this is different for every author, how far ahead, you know, in the plot and the storyline are you? So pretty far. My first two books I wrote, um, I knew the ending. And then my second two bo- my novels. The first two novels, I knew the ending. And then my second two novels, I knew the beginning. Um, I found that it's easier to know the ending you know, really? it is because you can write to the ending and not that things didn't change. Things did change. But um, the truth about Thea and my third book and my fourth book, Why We Lie, I knew the ending. I knew I mean, I knew the beginning. I knew how they would begin. And it took me a long time to figure out how they ended. And so th- that was more complicated. But I was, you know, I was trying to think ahead. But things definitely evolved and things definitely changed much more so in those two books than than in the first two. Um, so I don't, I try to work with uh, a loose outline, but I also love, and I'm not, not every writer is like this. I love the process. I love the process of writing. So I do like to be surprised by it. I like to like it to evolve. I think there's something organic about that. So I try not to, um, over, uh, outline, you know, the book so that I'm like not surprised at all or that I know exactly what's going to happen next. Cause then I feel like the writing gets a little stilted. Yeah. Um, Stephen King had said that he's got a process. I forget exactly what it is. It's like every morning yep. he writes and I think he writes either till a certain time or till he has a certain number of pages. Yes. Yes. Do you have something like that that you do? So when I'm in it, when I first when I'm first starting out with a book, uh, and I'm still trying to kind of figure out how it's going to go, it's more much more outlining. It's much more loose. Um, I'm not holding myself to word counts or page counts at that point. And then when I'm really in it, then I really try to hold myself to word counts. I do weekly counts because daily is very intimidating to me. So I try to do weekly word counts and try to hold myself to that, knowing that. You know, it's always like two two steps forward, one step back. You know, you'll write, write, write all week, and then you end up cutting, cutting, cutting. Um, but yeah, so I try to. So when I'm really in it, and when when the story really has momentum, then I really try to keep myself on track with with counts like that. Do you? Is there such a thing as writer's block? Uh, yeah, there is. Except often, really, what it is, it's just it's just a lack of focus in the story. So um, you know, often something as simple as having somebody read some of the pages for you or putting it down for a couple of days or reading something else that inspires you um, can often help through that. So yeah. do you feel like your books are all your babies? Yeah, for sure. They're very, per- it's very personal. I feel like now with my fifth novel coming out, 
this spring, and it's a little bit of a bookend because Lemongrass Hope, you know, came out in 2014. It was my first novel, and I it had somewhat of an open ending, and I would go to a lot of book clubs, and I would go to a lot of events, and people would say, are you going to write a sequel? And I always said no. I really didn't. I really didn't know what that would even look like. And fast forward a few books in, I got an idea, not for a sequel, but I got an idea for a follow-up book of Lemongrass Hope. And that is what this my spring release is. I know how this ends is a follow-up book to Lemongrass Hope, but it's it's some of the same characters, but new characters, new story. And so it's a little bit of a bookend to this time. And I feel like these books kind of set end to end in this time are like a little mini memoir for me because they feel very personal. Like I feel like the next book is going to be very different. So where do you get the inspiration for the stories? So maybe you could talk about the more recent one. Yeah. So Why We Lie is set in D.C. and it is a political thriller. And I I always want, you know, I started my legal career in D.C. And so, well, it was funny because my first two books had nothing to do with the law. There were like disgruntled lawyers in the background of those books, but they were not legal thrillers. There was not. And I would go, you know, to book events and book clubs and people would say, well, you're a lawyer. Why don't you write legal fiction? I'd say, well, you know, I was a corporate litigator. I mean, it's like not sexy at all. You were trying to get away from (laughs) the law for a while. Like not anything anybody wants to read about. But then I did have this idea for Truth About the uh, is a legal thriller. And I had this idea to write a book about um, that hinged on expert witness testimony because I did a lot of expert witness work, although – the Truth About Thea is a criminal trial. It's about a criminal trial. It did not do criminal work. But it's set at the Court of Common Pleas in Philadelphia, which is where my first trial happened 20 years ago. And so I really did try to kind of, you know, base it on my some, – somewhat on my experience and, and turn it into a legal thriller, which I loved. I loved doing that. So then I wanted to stay in that in that lane. Um, but I had this idea to write a book set in D.C. And, um, you know, of course – it seems tempting to sort of say that, like, you know, there's a lot going on with D.C. and politics now. But I, I call it, like, my non-political political thriller because it's a fictional politician running for a fictional office. But it did seem like a good time to kind of explore. It seems apropos. Yeah. It was like yeah. I wanted to explore, like, a corruption and, and you know, really kind of dangerous uh, storyline in in the streets of DC. I guess that's always relevant, yeah, though. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, you so I want to go back to some some essay, a personal essay you wrote. Actually, there was a lot of good stuff. I think just in this one, and you had talked about how when you were in DC, that the Monica Lewinsky thing was not public yet. It was happening at yeah. the time, and. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah, I think it's funny because when I when I think back to my time in D.C., I actually loved those years. And I actually – that's where my law career started. I was clerking. I was clerking for a fabulous judge. And I had a really great experience there. Like I don't want anybody to misinterpret, you know, no, my uh, – why we lie is about some really bad guys in D.C. And I – but I had a really fabulous experience in D.C. And then I moved to New York and I got this job practicing law in New York, and the Monica Lewinsky scandal broke, which it was like shocking to me that it ha- had happened, you know, on my watch, as if I was like this DC insider. And my firm, you know, Scadden was representing Bill Clinton in the in the deposition, and you know, I'd go to DC, and there'd be like hushed whispers as we'd walk by the room where the deposition occurred. Was that the one where he the, the that woman yes, reference was yes, made? Yeah, so that happened in the Scadden offices in DC, and. And so all of a sudden there was sort of, you know, these very like kind of odd links um, to my time in D.C. And it, it and it cast this kind of different light on those years that I remembered so fondly. And then, of course, when I got to New York, you know, I definitely 
uh, I was I definitely had a lot of idealism when I was still in DC about you know what I was going to do and what I was going to accomplish, and that started to erode when I. How got old in were DC. you at the time? I moved out of DC. I was twenty. Seven when I moved. Yeah, out of so DC. you were young. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I actually started. I actually, I actually didn't go right to Scadden. My first law firm job was for like a small boutique firm that only hired law clerks, and we were in court all the time. And it was fabulous work. It was really fabulous work, and I loved it. And I was trying cases before I was thirty, and That's I was good really experience. great experience. And in fact, then I get this job offer at Scadden. And, you know, it's triple the salary and, you know, prestige yeah. and all of that. And the partner, one of the partners said to me at my firm, you're going to hate it there. And I thought that was like sour grapes, you know, like what, how, what, what would you you're hate? You're just jealous. Yeah, like what would you <laughs> hate about going to Scott? And, um, and for a while he called me. He'd call me and say, like, do you want to come back? Do you want to come back? And I was so tempted. I really was. Even like that first year or two, I thought, did I make a mistake? Um, but I did have this idea, like, this is going to open a lot of doors for me. And it's, it has been true. Um, I thought this is going to open a lot of doors for me. I'm going to stick this out again for a couple of years. And then all of a sudden, a decade later, I'm still there. I was still there. Yeah. And then you made um, you had made a comment in your essay about the Me Too movement. Yeah. What do you think about just generally the Me Too movement? Do you think it's helping women? You know, I it's funny because when I was starting Why We Lie, when I was writing Why We Lie, I the me it was like 2017, right when the Me Too movement is sort of breaking. And I'm, I was paying attention to it, and I was sort of looking, and I was thinking to myself, you never saw any women in the legal or political world stepping up or talking. And I knew why, because I had been in that world, and it's a very, very difficult world for women. And, and the big law culture is a very difficult world for women. And if I was still in that world, I would not have been able to speak up. Either and and I even found myself I would catch myself sometimes about to post something or about to respond to something and sort of holding back and I think I still do and I've been out of that world for a decade and I still don't really talk about some of the things that happened there and so I thought you know this is really interesting because there's a conspicuous lack of women's voices in that world and I know why and I so there is a very um, uh, poignant Me Too thread in, in Why We Lie. And it was definitely my way of trying to kind of insert my voice into the into the movement without... And, you know, I always say I, I'm not brave enough to write nonfiction, so that's why I write fiction. But just because it's fiction doesn't mean it's not true. That's, that's exactly what you said in your essay, yeah. is that you've noticed that women lawyers are conspicuously absent. You're yeah. such a good writer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, they are. And you know why. And they still are. Yeah, they why, still are. Why? Because they're afraid. Because you, uh, I mean, listen, I, I was definitely retaliated against for speaking up about um, really bad behavior of male lawyers while I worked there, while I worked at Skadden. I, I did. I spoke up and I asked to not work with certain people and there was definite retaliation. Um, I got assigned to not as good cases. I, um, you know, there was, I wasn't necessarily moving up as fast as colleagues to counsel positions. And I wasn't gunning for partner, but I was gunning for counsel at one point. And, um, and I have not, you know, Skadden really does embrace their alumni. And, you know, I get my alumni newsletter all the time and emails inviting me to things. But anytime I've reached out to Skadden to support the books or to have a book event or even to sponsor books, it's been met with complete silence. So there's still, there's still definitely... 
Um, is it a boys club? Oh, for sure it is. For sure it is. And it was always, um, it was always lagging behind the time. So I think there have been a lot of improvements um, from what I, you know, hear from the outside. Um, like but what? Very, you know, there's, I mean, listen, when I worked there and it wasn't, the, it wasn't the stone ages, it was, it was a long time ago, but in 2003, 2005, when I took my first maternity leaves, there was no written maternity leave policy at a, at a firm like Scan. Can you imagine? I mean, it was not, you were not expected to take maternity leave. And I used to hear in my annual reviews at that time, um, you would never know you're a mom. Good job. Like that. This is this wasn't even that long no, ago. No, this wasn't like you know nineteen forty. Yeah, we're not talking right. about like yeah nineteen twenty. Yeah. I had a very I had like an off the books um, like not in writing arrangement for my maternity leave and uh, and and the same thing when I went back part time too. So I negotiated backdoor like you know not in writing negotiation for my part time schedule when I went back after I, I worked all the way up until my third child was. Uh, when I left for my sabbatical, my kids were five, three, and one. And and I was still, you know, so I was still essentially working what anyone else would consider full-time. Um, but I was making a part-time salary, which I had negotiated just so that I could basically be home on the weekends and not be expected to come home. Was, come into was the that office. part of your dissatisfaction there? Do you think if you had been treated better as a woman that maybe you would still be there? I... I don't know if I would still be there, but I do think I might still be practicing law. And I often think that if I had stayed at my first firm, I might have stayed in practicing law for longer. But again, I don't regret any of the time I spent at Skadden because it was, I mean, I did work on some really amazing high profile cases and I I did a lot of really interesting work, but I never had the kind of trial work that I had at my first firm. And I loved that. And there was, you know, I was often looking for opportunities at Skadden. Like when I came there, um, you know, I said to them, I really, you know, I'm I'm trying cases. I'm first chair at this other firm. Like I really don't want to be locked in a basement doing document reviews here. And so they were respectful of that at first for sure. And uh, and definitely I got motion practice and I got opportunities that other young lawyers at Skadden definitely did not have. But I had to fight for them. And so, like I said, it was frustrating to then be retaliated against when I spoke up about bad behavior and and not not get those plum jobs and those plum assignments anymore because I knew that I was very much qualified for them. So, so yeah, yeah, I was going to ask you what the re- retaliation was. Was it sort of something unspoken? You just felt it? Uh, or um, was it what more overt? Uh, it there there were times that it was overt. There was there were t- definite times that it was overt, but most most of the time it was just sort of this kind of unspoken thread that, um, and we we as women <clears throat> we did not support each other in that culture, That's and that is very frustrating to me to think back on and how we were how we were mentoring other young women coming into the firm or not mentoring them really. We were really teaching them to to be quiet to just, uh, you know, do whatever they could to um, not, make wa- not make waves and not, not challenge the system. And we were, we were not doing a service to any of the, new, the young women that were coming up. That's really interesting to yeah. me because I have, uh, you know, I think all women, we all know, I, I think men sort of get it a little bit, but I think women can either be really wonderful and supportive and, and rocks for each other, 
Or they can be completely the opposite. They can be mean, spiteful. Um, you know, it reminds me of the movie Mean Girls. Yeah. And I've often wondered why is it that some some women, because I don't want to say all women do that, because I have want, a lot of wonderful women in my yeah. life that are very supportive. And a lot of them come on this show. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's pretty interesting to me how... When you do get the women that are catty and and not supportive and, you know, doing things almost to undermine each other, especially sometimes to look better to other men. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really doesn't make sense to me why that happens. Yeah. I mean, it's based on fear for sure. And I, you know, after uh, after my first two novels, after my first two books were published, I found this group of writers called the Tall Poppy Writers, and it's a group of women writers. And it was founded by Anne Garvin, who is a, a best-selling author who was realizing that women and a lot of women that she knew, and she was published with a big house, and she had at the time a big academic position, so she had a big platform. But she still realized that women in the publishing industry were having a hard time getting noticed, and so she gathered some other women. She basically got, kind of gathered some women around her to help. And, and with the idea that they would help promote each other. And the, the concept took off, and I found them, and I've been a group of, I've been a member of the groups for years, and now we're about 40 some, about 45 strong. And we exist to, we, we, we have a marketing, we, we're, we operate as a business now. So we are a marketing co op, but we do a lot of um, brand sponsorship and things like that. Um, but also, we really exist to sort of raise up other women in the industry, even women who aren't part of our group, we raise up other women in the industry. And I always thought this would have been so helpful when I was practicing law. Like we should have had a tall poppy lawyers. We should have been raising it. There should have been a group of women. But, not, you know, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say I also wasn't strong enough at the time or confident enough at the time with my position in the firm to to, to spearhead something like that. But, so, you know, we if we had gathered together and really, you know, created like a voice and really ch- tried to raise each other up and tried to mentor other young women lawyers who came in, um, it, things might have been very different. And I, st- I don't think it's really going on still to this day because I think there's a lot of fear. And I, as long as women, you know, continue in the minority, obviously there's a, there's a power shift that doesn't weigh in their favor. So Well, it sounds like you probably spoke up a little more maybe than other women were because that's the one thing they read all the time is that women typically compared to men yeah. don't speak up about what they want you know getting better pay asking for yeah. a raise um you know demanding certain benefits and men do yeah absolutely no, and i've absolutely. always said you have to ask yeah you have to ask yeah there's no what's the what's the worst thing that's going to happen so yeah and i found that that when i did speak up i was respected for that and uh um, so there were good things that happened, but you know, it wasn't always, it wasn't always met with open arms. And I, and I worked with a lot of women who would say to me, oh, you got to just keep quiet, just keep quiet. Just, you know, you're lucky they're still letting you work with the kids and they're, you're lucky they're still oh letting you work a modified schedule. No and, one can see my face right now, I but know, I'm I mean, it, it was so <laughs> frustrating. It was so frustrating, um, to, to just, you know, that you, we were just supposed to be satisfied with something so Thing you know, we were just supposed to be satisfied with really basic, basic things. I slept on my office floor all the time. I was supposed to be on call twenty four seven, no matter what. And it was just a very difficult culture. And um, and I worked hard. I worked really hard. And I was a good lawyer. I mean, I really that's that's the thing that I often say to people. I didn't leave because 
I wasn't successful. I left because it was time to do something else. And so yeah. I really... Um, you grew out of your space. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, and and you can just say whatever you feel comfortable saying, but um, you said there was some improper conduct there. Was it something like sexual harassment oriented? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah very much so. And um, yeah, I mean, I was told that I, you know, going to bars at night when I had briefs to write, that leaving my desk and going out to bars was part of my job. And I, and so as a result, you know, I had to go to to some of these things where it was just, you know, there were just inappropriate conduct and then go back to, and then escape that and go back to my office and work on a brief till two or three in the morning because, you know, that was part of my job. Um, yeah. And if you didn't play along with it, you're not in the club. Correct. But right. you can never really be in the club anyway no. because you're a woman. No. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was trying to be in a club that I was never going to be in for sure. Yeah. 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 And then I would get, I would get punished. You know, I would say no to certain things and then I would all of a sudden land like the brief that nobody wanted to do would be on my desk and do, you know, in 24 hours, like things yeah. like that were very, very common. Those were like baseline. That was like, oh, yeah. here we go. Okay. Do you think that they were ever going to overcome this? I mean, I hope so. I have a daughter. <laughs> I have to hope so. Um, how? Yeah. What, what how? do we do? How? I mean, it's, it's. I know you didn't come here thinking that, know. you know, you were going to save the world on the radio today. No, but. I do think, uh, like I said, I do think the top copywriters, um, is a really great model for a lot of industries. And I think, you know, women who, um, you know, band together, who are transparent with each other about money. I mean, that's another thing that the tall poppy writers has done is that in publishing, there was like this veil of secrecy about money, about advances and royalties, and nobody ever spoke about it. Nobody ever talked about it. And, and still, there's still a lot of, of that. Um, but we are very open with each other and we talk about money and we talk about agents and we talk about, good behavior and bad behavior of agents and 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 what you know what has led some people to fire their agents and why somebody is somebody might want to get rid of their agent or why somebody might want to leave a publishing house so uh, you know we are are supportive of each other out in the world but then also in our inner circle we're very open and transparent with each other and that and and knowledge I is power that. you know so we've given we've empowered um each other to really make a lot of i think um good decisions. I think that's wonderful because I really think that women together <laughs> are such an incredible force. Yeah. And I've always said too that we understand what our experience is in life. Right. You know, men don't understand what right. our experience is in life. So right. why why would we not, you know, help each other through that? Yeah. Yeah, so. I agree. And I think, you know, I think opportunities to speak out about it are really helpful. I think the Me Too movement has definitely, you know, opened a lot of eyes and and given a lot of people a platform. Um, So it's a small step. So I think it's just baby steps. At least it's creating some awareness. Absolutely. You know, not talking about it is just perpetuates it. Right. Right. I totally agree with that. And I think gives the people that are perpetrating it permission to keep doing it. I mean, I'm completely fascinated by the Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, absolutely stuff that's going on. I would love to go see the trial. I Probably everybody's going to yeah. go see the trial, so I, I don't need to get a press <laughs> like a pass somehow. Event. Yeah. Maybe somebody here at yeah. WCTC can help me with that. Um, but um, 
we have a little bit of time left. I want you to have an opportunity to talk about your inspiration for why we lie, what it's about. And we had started an interesting conversation before we started airing about lying. Yeah. So I kind of want to go back to that, too. Yeah. Well, why we lie... Uh, again, it's a book that came to me as the beginning. So I had this idea that I wanted to write a book about a fictional politician running for a fictional office in D.C. Um, and in the beginning of the book, this isn't giving anything away, in the beginning of the book he's shot and he is having brain surgery and he's recovering from his injuries. And he and his wife learn this startling diagnosis that his brain is sort of overcompensating on itself and um, he's lost his pre Uh, he's lost a filter basically he's lost his brain filter and he's can no longer lie and so you you might think okay well a politician that can't lie that's that's the story premise but really it's not because it's not a big deal to him that he can't lie it's a really big deal to his wife and so she has a a very um the the story is told in sort of like a back and forth timeline um, because she is sort of running away from something and she has created this new life for herself in D.C. And we unravel her backstory and why it's so important to her that the lying continues. Um, and it's certainly meant to, to provoke the question, is it is it ever okay to lie? There are a lot of liars in this book. <laughs> a lot of liars. Yeah. Some good guys, some well, not so good guys. And that's one of the things we talk about when I, when I go to book clubs is like, who's your list of good guys? And I'm using guys you know, colloquially here, who's your list of good guys in this book and who's your list of bad guys? And like, does it match mine? And does it match the person next to you? Because there are a lot of liars in the book, but I would, um, I would venture to say that some of the lies are, are warranted and some of the lies are, are forgivable and understandable. So we're, we were talking about what I think you had posed the question, well, do, would you want to live in a world where people mm-hmm. don't lie? And it's a really good question. Yeah. I mean, I guess initially if, if you would say, well, yeah, I would love to live in a world where everybody's just honest all the time. But I I think if you consider that a little more carefully. Yeah. I mean, that only works if everyone is really nice and good and kind yes. all the time. Because it, yeah. human nature being what it is, um, you know, and none of us are perfect, right? So it's hard to think about a world where – you can never sort of soften the, those edges ever. And, um, and you know, obviously in this book, there there's a mystery and there's something that unravels. But there are, and there are, there are clear, you know, like I said, there are clear lies that are harmful. Um, but there also are some lies that are, that are, that are life-saving in this book. And so I think that that's something that I was really trying to explore. Like, is, is there, are there lies that can save your life? Are there lies that you couldn't move forward unless you told? Um, so that's part of, that's definitely part of the story. It's a wonderful teaser. Yeah. Thank you. And, um, I think I heard some saying recently that, Everyone has one book in them, but not too many people have two books in them. And you have quite a few books in what five or six now? Yeah. So this is my fifth my fifth novel's coming out this spring. So um why don't you tease us about that one? What's the new one? Yeah, so I know how this ends is my book that's coming out in March. And um this is the bookend to Lemongrass Hope, which was my debut novel. So Lemongrass Hope released in two thousand fourteen. It has uh somewhat of an open ending. It's about a woman who um, you know, is sort of faced with a crossroads of her life and rethinking every decision that she had ever made up until then. Not surprisingly, that was sort of the novel that came to be that that, that sort of arose from my sabbatical. Uh, and then I wrote it for three or four years afterwards. And um, I 
like I said, it does have somewhat of an open ending. And I had this kind of idea that people would basically interpret one of two endings. And what I learned as I traveled for the book and as I did a lot of book events is that people had a whole host of endings that they like layered responses to the end of this book. And so people would always say to me, are you going to write a sequel? Are you going to write another one? And I kept saying no because I just really thought I didn't want to do damage to the story. And I loved that people were putting their own spins and their own interpretations. But then I actually went to a book event once, and we we were talking about the book extensively. And after I left there, I got this idea for a new – like a new chapter of the book, not a sequel exactly. It is a book that has this kind of mystical time travel element to it. Um, And so I got this idea to write a follow-up that would have basically be another chapter. And so that's what I know how this ends is. It's another chapter of Lemongrass Hope. It's um, it's some of the same characters, but it's brand new characters. So it's, a, a you know, I think a brand new story. It opens in New York City in the spring of 2020 when the first – um, at a commencement ceremony. It's the first graduating class, which is true of the spring. It's the first graduating class that was born after 9-11. So it's the first graduating class of truly 9-11 survivors. Um, this, in this book, this small class is like mm. a cohort study of all children who were born to women who were pregnant on or around 9-11 and, get, and gave birth soon after. And so um, this young woman is getting ready to deliver the commencement speech, and there's all kinds of chaos ensuing in Manhattan. There are these traffic jams, and there are people trying to get to um, the graduation. It's basically the, a lot of the book is told from inside taxi cabs. And um, there are a couple there, – there's a couple that's trying to get to the graduation. Um, her parents are trying to get to the graduation, and there's sort of – reflecting on everything that's come before and why they're having so much trouble getting to this point. So that's this, this is how this ends. I mean, I know how this ends. And um, the ending is uh, hopefully very surprising. So. (laughs) Okay. So you have to read Lemongrass Hope first. So technically this is a standalone book that is, I think a little better appreciated if you read Lemongrass Hope first. Does that make okay. sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. It makes sense. So I have yeah. a lot of reading I have to catch up on. Yeah. yeah. When is one of these going to be a movie? Yeah. Okay. So thank you. From, <laughs> from your lips to my agent's ears. Is that um, something you've thought about? <laughs> yeah. Actually, when Lemongrass Hope came out, we got, we did get a couple of um, TV producers read the book. And um, the same with Truth About Thea. Um Truth About Thea was picked by Francis Ford Coppola for a Books and Bottles package. Um, so I had like... That's pretty know, cool. It was really fun to see my book on sale like in Sonoma next to the Godfather That's desk. That's awesome. But still no movie options for my book. So maybe one of these days. Well, how do you... I don't even... Look, I haven't even written a book yet. So <laughs> maybe I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Maybe we have a couple minutes left. I think I personally would like the answer to this. And I know a lot of my <laughs> listeners um, would love to know. How do you go about finding an agent? Yeah. So I had a... Uh, an interesting journey to an agent because Lemongrass Hope was actually published without an agent. So I had, because I was working um, for this company that had, like I said, it was a startup company. I was moving from a print magazine to an e-commerce company. And so I knew people in the publisher. I had some connections uh, in publishing. Um, somebody introduced me to my publisher directly, which is not normally how that happens. And then um, I got my first book published. So after Lemongrass Hope came out, there was, you know, a little modest success. And then I met the top copywriters and I networked and I made some really great friends who introduced me to some of their agents. And that is how I got my agent, basically, through an introduction. Um, 
because there there are a lot of different ways to get an agent. There's you know the hunt the stories of the hundreds and hundreds of letters and rejections, yes. the Harry Potter books. Yeah, and those are real. And I have a lot of friends who have done that, gone that route. Um, but also, I think an, a really a really viable avenue is to put yourself out there, to go to write, writing conferences, to meet other writers, to to organically and authentically seek out um, you know mentorship and and um, relationships with with other writers I, I have people contact me often um, that are you know that are really they're aspiring writers and they're going through all the steps and they're doing the same things I was doing so I'm very I'm very sympathetic to that and, and try to be very generous to those people and then there are people that are just not not <laughs> that are just like how can I shortcut you know how can I shortcut yes. the process and you just yeah. you know you know the difference um, yeah so, I think yeah. you have to have a passion for it if it's yeah. about anything at all if it's not your passion and you're just doing it because you want a certain level of success Correct. and money I just it doesn't really it's work. Not, it's not an easy way to make money. I, and I tell people that all the time because a lot of people say to me like, well, I want to quit my job and write books. I'm like, well, I didn't quit my job and write books. Yeah. That's, I've always worked on the side you know, to subsidize the writing ever since I left the law because, because I want to write and I want to love it and I don't want it to be – I don't want it to break me because of the the financial struggle because it is a very difficult way to make money. So I often tell people you have to understand that up front. Well, I my favorite place on earth is Barnes and Noble. Yeah. <laughs> I love to go to Barnes and Noble, but it's pretty overwhelming yeah. how many books there are. Yes. <laughs> and I was talking to somebody, I forget who was tell, explaining to me this, something I did not know is that the publishers are paying yes. to have the you know certain books yes. right up front when right. you walk in. That's how they make. That's how Barnes and Noble makes their money. They don't make money selling books anymore because everyone buys their books on Amazon oh, or in other retailers. But Barnes and Noble is an advertiser. I yeah. didn't know mm-hmm. that. Yeah, so I didn't know that something. either until I got into the industry. So I guess it's you know what I do, and I think a lot of people do this. I'll go to Barnes and Noble, I find the book, unless I have some burning desire that I have to have it right now. I check Amazon if it's cheaper. I buy it on Amazon and I wait for it to come in the mail. So how how is this model sustainable with Barnes and Noble? Do you think it's going to close? I don't know. They just actually just released some uh, a report that they're going to that buying is way down at Barnes and Noble, and they're going to buy my, many fewer copies in the spring. So I don't I don't know. And but. The good news is indie bookstores are on the rise. I'm always That's so good. so I, I'm in love with my local indie um, Firefly bookstore, and they moved into a bigger space recently, which makes me so excited. So I think there are. St- I mean, people still love books, and they still love their brick and mortar bookstores. I like books, and I my boyfriend got me a Kindle way back, or one of those, a Nook, and yeah. because he doesn't read. I'm a little <laughs> embarrassed to say that. <laughs> And he was like, what are all these books right. everywhere? Yeah. Get rid of these. And I'm like, no, yeah. I'm yeah. not getting rid of my I'm books. I'm the same way. I have stacks and stacks of books all over the so house. So I don't use it. I need a book. I like yeah. the physical book. Yeah. And I think there's there's still a lot of people like that. Yeah. But I, I, think I don't know. True. I'm hoping that the readers out there, we, we can do enough that we can sustain the bookstores. Yeah. I'd be very sad if, if we, I lost Barnes & Noble. Yeah. Um, so we've got like one minute left. Yeah. I know that you have an, a, a speaking event coming up soon. Can you tell everybody about that? Yeah. So um, so you can check my website, um, com, And I'm going to be at the Princeton Library in February um, talking about why we lie. And then I'm also going to be in the Hamptons. Um, this is the second year in a row. I'm going to be at the Hamptons Author um, Bedside Reading Authors Festival. Um, and then I'm 
currently booking uh, my events for the March release of I Know How This Ends, so those will all be on my website soon. Wonderful. Yeah. Can you just spell your last name for everybody? Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, I know. It always it looks worse than it is. It's I-M-P-E-L-L. I-Z-Z-E-R-I. Okay. And I'll have a, when I post this as yeah. a podcast, yeah. I will have a link for your website. Awesome. Thank you so much for Thank joining you for us. Thank having me. Thanks for sharing your creative process and, you know, some of the um, more political uh, opinions yeah. that you have. I appreciate it. Maybe yeah, someday you. you come back on and we can get some more of the juicy stuff. Yeah. 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 For sure. You should write a memoir. Yeah. <laughs> That should be your next thing. Yeah, we'll see. Um, But anyway, thank you and thank you for listening to Wake Up Call. We'll see you next time. Awesome.